in moments of conflict rather than being reactive, thinking, well, I'm doing this because you did that, pausing to say, well, what's the future that I'm trying to move us toward? And what is the impact on the other person? What am I trying to invite from them that might take us together to a different place, to have a more productive conversation, to learn something and to find a way to live side by side? Because in many cases, we don't have a choice. We live side by side. Welcome to the Leadership Podcast. What does it mean to lead well in the 21st century? We speak to significant leaders from around the world to learn how to shift our leadership up a gear and become the leaders we're called to be. We learn from leaders from the creative industries, law, church, charities and more as we seek to make a positive impact in the world. I'm on the campus of the prestigious Harvard Law School today and I'm here to meet Sheila Heen. Sheila is an expert on managing difficult negotiations. She is a lecturer on law at Harvard Law School and the founder of Triad Consulting. Her corporate clients include Apple, BAE Systems, HSBC, Unilever, Pixar. She often partners with executive teams, helping them work through conflict, repair working relationships and make sound decisions together. In the public sector, she's also provided training for the New England Organ Bank, the Singapore Supreme Court, the Obama White House, and theologians struggling with disagreement over the nature of truth and God. Hina spent the last 20 years with the Harvard Negotiation Project, developing negotiation theory and practice. Hina is the co-author of the New York Times best-selling Difficult Conversations, How to Discuss What Matters Most, which has been named among the top 50 psychology classics and by Penguin as among the 75 most important books they've ever published. She is frequently on television and has appeared on Oprah, NPR, Fox News and CNBC's Power Lunch. Her articles have been published in the New York Times and the Harvard Business Review. I'm so excited to meet Sheila because she is the master of having difficult conversations and that's something I'm not good at at all. So I know I have a lot to learn. So we are at the Harvard Law School in Boston, Massachusetts, and this is a world famous institution and I'm excited to be here with you, Sheila, and your role here is as a professor of law, but you're also heavily involved in the Harvard Negotiation Project. Can you tell us a little bit about how you come to be here? Well, it was sort of an accident. I came to Harvard Law School to come to law school, and within my first year I met Roger Fisher. And that's the rest of my life. (laughs) Roger wrote Getting to Yes, which is a foundation book in the negotiation and conflict resolution space. But he also fought in World War II. And he came home from the war to find that of the six college roommates who had started college together, and they stopped out at the end of their first year to go to war, he was the only one who came home. And the rest of his life was really motivated, driven by a desire to find better ways to handle conflict around the world. I was inspired by the story you told me that Roger would just be reading the newspaper and realize there was a border conflict somewhere and he would kind of insert himself in just by sending unsolicited faxes. Is that right? Oh yeah, he'd say, Sheila, come in. I, th- I think we should start working on this. I think maybe we can be helpful. And one of his gifts is he would immediately treat you like a peer. I'm thinking, I know nothing. I have nothing to offer. But he would say, you know, let's talk about this border dispute between Peru and Ecuador. And he would come up with advice. And then he would write a letter to the leaders, each of the leaders, and he would fax it off to them, right? And they'd be getting some fax from a guy named Roger in the United States. And periodically, they'd say, gosh, this is kind of interesting. And they would actually call him back. 
And he got himself basically invited into or inserted into conflicts all over the world. Amazing. It's not what everybody might think of when we think of a law school. If you watch a show like Suits, the legal industry is about individuals making as much money for themselves as possible. This seems to have a more philanthropic, altruistic vision behind it. Is that all Roger or is it something that's more widely held across Harvard? Well, it's very much a live conversation, I think, in the legal profession and in legal education, because the purpose of having lawyers in your society is to have a place where people can bring conflicts and where they will get help with those conflicts, either help finding justice for themselves, help having their voice heard to tell their story and to make their case, but that lawyers are also supposed to be counselors. They're supposed to help people find their way to the other side of conflict. And I think that so often these days, and maybe particularly in the American system, lawyers often make conflict worse. And so one of the things that we talk a lot about in the course that I teach, the negotiation course that I teach, is what's the difference between litigating a case and actually helping someone find a solution that can settle that case? And how do we be forces for good for our clients to represent their interests? but help them see their interests with a longer-term perspective and help them to actually find solutions rather than simply to escalate things, which costs them a whole lot more. And most lawyers actually who really are good at what they do have too much on their plate. And so if they can actually be helping clients more efficiently find solutions faster, that's good for everybody. I love that reframing. That seems to be a real leadership trait actually we're not just accepting the industry as it is we're wanting to reframe that and reframing it for a good purpose a redemptive purpose some might argue and there are collateral benefits in doing that both from a I guess personal lifestyle busyness kind of approach but also the sector ends up with a better reputation people are more likely to trust you it might be better for business to do good oh absolutely better and also better for them individually and personally I mean, you have a lot of burned out lawyers, a lot of lawyers in pain because they've lost sight of the purpose for which they went to law school. They've lost sight of what does this mean? What impact am I having on the world? And how do I rethink what I'm doing so that I can actually finally again feel like I'm helping people? I've met a lot of people who come to me. I I run a fostering and adoption charity in the UK and people in kind of corporate America or corporate UK, they say, well, I'm going to leave that and I'm going to go and start a charity. And I kind of often want to say back to them, actually, there's more chance of you doing good staying where you are and redeeming the opportunities that you have. So, you know, if people are feeling like they're not doing good anymore, do you have any advice? How can they begin to find that good purpose within the space they're in rather than having to start something up again and and become a beginner again maybe. Yeah and it's not that there's anything wrong with walking away and starting something new and being a beginner again but at the same time there's a cost to that because often in the role that you're in in the profession that you're in you have a network of relationships and you have a reputation where people respect what you have to say and you actually have a lot of influence. Because if you talk about what what do we mean when we talk about people having power, from a negotiation perspective, power is the ability to influence others. And often staying in the network you're in, in the profession that you're in, you have actually more influence. More people trust what you have to say than if you tear yourself out of that 
and start anew. You can take some of your reputation with you, but you're also actually losing some of the influence you could have from inside whatever system you're in. That's right. Actually, as a charity director, the collaboration opportunity with someone who's already in a field where they are influential, it's exponentially more powerful for us. A lot of people listening to this podcast will have a Christian faith that informs their leadership. Can you tell us a little bit about your own faith journey? Yeah, you know, I grew up in Nebraska and Iowa in the evangelical church. And I think that the thing that I've come to appreciate over the years is that when we're in conflict with other people in our lives, that is where in some ways the greatest opportunity lies for not just to live our own faith, but also to wrestle with the challenges of living that faith because I'm not feeling particularly kind or magnanimous or I don't really see how I'm going to get to a place of grace in this conflict with you because you're driving me crazy and you know it's been years that you've been driving me crazy and you're wrong just flat out wrong and so my ability to find a place where I can be curious and I can hold that person in compassion and curiosity rather than frustration and contempt which is, I think, for human beings, the greatest challenges live in the relationships that we're currently in, and that those relationships are often there to teach us something about ourselves and about what it means to live Jesus' teachings. How would you say your faith impacts what you do on a day-by-day job, your leadership within this area of negotiation? I think part of the question, and as I, like most people, as I'm getting older, slowly, sadly. You know, my kids are teenagers and my eldest is in college and that question, okay, what do I want to do here? What have I been doing and why? And what is the purpose for my being here? And what is it that I'm doing with the gifts that I've been given that is really going to impact the world and make the world a little bit better and be that light for other people. And even on days when I don't, I feel the light has been extinguished. It's (laughs) dim at the very least sometimes. And so I think it reminds me often on the hardest days why I'm doing what I'm doing and then sort of gives me the ability to step back to really think about what's the bigger picture here of why I'm here and what impact I can have. It's really helpful. What I enjoy about the work you do is it can impact nation states. You know, nation states need to know how to negotiate better. The top news today is about what's happening in the Middle East and the negotiations that are taking place there. So negotiation skills are needed at that level. But actually a lot of our deepest pain can come from difficult relationships in the office or even at the home. Yes. So the work you're doing seems to apply almost to every level, but are they the same skills or do they need working out differently in different places? They're absolutely the same skills. And I think that's one of the things that has been most rewarding for me in this field because I do work with folks in the Middle East and I do work with folks in Cyprus struggling with the conflict between Greek and Turkish Cypriots there. And I also work with sports teams and C-suite executives wrestling with the ways in which their world is changing and getting more complex. And I work with families. And I have to say, it's not that the big international conflicts are more complicated than the inside our kitchen conflicts, actually, emotionally. And the same skills and the same analytical skills to help understand what's going on and make choices about how do I want to handle this? You know, I have two boys and a girl, and when my boys were little, you know, they would get into it, as they do, uh, and one would hit the other, and I'd say, well, why did you hit your brother? And what does he say? 
because he hit me, Okay. <laughs> right? And what I've learned is to pause and say, I don't mean what caused you to hit your brother. When I say, why did you hit your brother? What I mean is, what were you hoping to accomplish by hitting him back? What response did you want to get from him? And what impact were you trying to have? And I think in moments of conflict, rather than being reactive, thinking, well, I'm doing this because you did that, pausing to say, well, what's the future that I'm trying to move us toward? And what is the impact on the other person? What am I trying to invite from them that might take us together to a different place, to have a more productive conversation, to learn something and to find a way to live side by side? Because in many cases, we don't have a choice. We live side by side in this region or in our parenting relationships with each other or with our neighbors. And What is the relationship we want to have with them, and how do we be a force for being unconditionally constructive Mm. about how we handle those conflicts and the world we're trying to create? It's interesting. It sounds like in order to be a good leader, people skills, understanding, emotional intelligence all seem to be really useful. And yet, in the corporate world, you can think of a number of CEOs who seem to model the opposite. So Elon Musk is not particularly well known for his people management skills. He was in a huge Mm -hmm. conflict with a rescue diver trying to help kids out of a cave in Thailand. And he decides to go on a Twitter rampage or Steve Jobs, also not brilliantly known for his people skills, even in politics. Some of our politicians have better people skills than others. So what's going on there? Are they the outliers? Are they the exceptions to the rule? Or is it just fairy tale fluffiness that you actually need these emotional intelligence skills in order to proceed in business. Yeah, I love that question, by the way, because it's the one that we all wonder about. (laughs) Well, if this stuff is so great, how come those guys aren't using it? And they seem to be doing fine. You know, my dad's an attorney also, and he works with mostly with entrepreneurs, Mm. helping them buy and sell their technology and their companies, et cetera, acquire others. And he would always say, most entrepreneurs are not successful because of themselves. They're successful despite themselves the ones who are successful at all. And so it's not that you can't have some success because you have a brilliant idea, you've got amazing vision, you're absolutely undeterred by any roadblocks. Um, You don't take the feedback that this might not work and you plow through and insist it's going to work anyway and you gamble in a way that pays off. So when we look at Elon Musk or Steve Jobs or others who are sort of infamously difficult, I think the question we should be asking is not how come they're as successful as they are despite their impediments. Maybe the question we should be asking is, boy, how much more successful could they be if they weren't constantly stirring the pot, alienating other people, causing people to spend time and energy arguing, fighting, doubting, managing scandals? And what if we could put all that energy toward actually accomplishing what they actually have the vision to point us toward, but maybe not the skills to help us get there without a whole lot of collateral damage and transaction cost? That is fascinating. I'm riffing with you now because I'm really interested in this. So there is a sense of emotional toughness that leaders might need that if we're always trying to get consensus it's very difficult to move forward famously Steve Jobs talked about not wanting feedback about his phone because if people knew what they want they would have had it already but they don't know what they want so I need to create something new Mm -hmm. and there is something debilitating and paralyzing about always being worried about what other people are thinking will they like it keeping everybody on board and happy and therefore surging ahead and, and making innovation that toughness does need to be there But on the other hand, 
you're not a leader unless you're taking people with you. So how do we work through that tension? Is there a paradox there? What's the balance? What should leaders do? I don't want to be so sensitive that I can never make a difficult decision. I don't want to be insensitive that I'm always making difficult decisions. Do you have advice for us? Yeah, well, I think that sometimes people think, well, if I have all these skills, that just means I'm nice all the time and that I always proceed with consensus. Consensus is actually a very dangerous way to lead an organization because the idea of consensus is that everyone full stop, is on board. And that will never be true when you have to make difficult judgment calls. And it also means that the status quo is going to stay in place because one person can veto us changing anything. And so I actually think that good leadership skills around communication and managing conflict means having the toughness to invite that conflict in and to say, I'm not going to strong arm us into a decision, but I'm going to invite us to actually have an honest and candid conversation to wrestle with why we see this so differently and why we have different predictions or timelines or strategies for where we're going and how we're going to get there. Because I need the diversity of opinion to be on the table so that together we actually can put all the puzzle pieces of the picture of reality that we each see and our past experience on the table to construct a more complete picture. And if we have the most complete picture we can have at this stage in a complex, fast-moving environment, that's going to be the place where we can make sound decisions together. And I'll take the heat for making the call at the end of the day, but I actually want to hear everybody out, Mm -hmm. as well as to share why, given everything I've heard, I think we're going where we're going. And often people will come with you as long as they feel heard and that their view and their worries for what they see coming or their objections, that's incredibly important. If they feel heard, now they're on board. And now I see the objections and the roadblocks Mm. we're likely to face so that now together we're actually much more likely to get there. That is really good, actually. I can see it in myself as a leader, either the fear of having the difficult conversation because of dealing with negative reactions and the emotional responses and being blown off course but actually the opposite fear if I don't have those difficult conversations a I'm not going to bring people with me but b they're not going to be able to point out what needs to get done what needs to be heard so that that's really really good I know your latest book has looked at feedback and less about giving feedback but more about receiving feedback tell me where you got to with that why was that an important book for you to write and why it might be particularly helpful for leaders to be aware of it So I had spent 20 years helping people with their most difficult conversations. And the one that comes up again and again and again is feedback conversations. There are very few organizations in the world who feel that they're having the feedback conversations they need to have and that they're going as well as they need to go. By the way, if you're in an organization that is that way, call me (laughs) because I want to know all about it. I would love to learn from that. So, so the question became, why are we not having those conversations? And, you know, some of it is identity. I don't want to hurt the other person's feelings. Or I tried and they didn't take it well, so why go through that again? But after wrestling with this question for a number of years, one day it occurred to us, you know, we've been focused on teaching givers how to give, but that's actually only half the equation. In any exchange of feedback between giver and receiver, it's actually the receiver who's in charge of what they decide to let in and how they respond or what sense they make of it and whether and how they choose to change. So maybe we're missing half the story here. And so we started to look around to say, well, what's out there on the challenges for all of us, by the way, and maybe particularly people who are high achievers, we're very hard on ourselves mm-hmm. and finding out from other people receiving feedback 
formal or informal, direct or indirect, it's often indirect, but how we're impacting other people in the world can be deeply upsetting. And I've actually come to believe that receiving feedback is a skill, and it's actually a distinct leadership skill, that if you get good at it, not only can you take charge of and accelerate your own learning as a leader, but as you move up in organizations, fewer and fewer people are willing to give you candid coaching about, yeah, like you're having a bigger and bigger impact on everybody and everything, and fewer and fewer people are willing to tell you about it. And so as a leader, being able to solicit input and honest coaching from the people around you is probably the most important skill you can have for the success of your leadership. And it also builds the kind of relationships you need to have around you. And it also tells them, you're role modeling, this is what I value, and you better be learning too. Mm. And you better be open to feedback and soliciting it from the people below you so that you can understand the impact you're having and what they need from you. This is so helpful. I can see in my own leadership, there are definitely times when I'm wanting to insulate myself from feedback that being vulnerable is going to be difficult because I feel part of my job as a leader is to keep pursuing true north, not allowing the naysayers to blow us off course. Sometimes when there's a lot of angst and anxiety in the room, I feel my job is to be strong and hopeful and keep morale going and to open up the room for more feedback might just mean I'm not quite as confident and as upbeat and chipper as I I might need to be so can I take it what if you get the feedback that you're too chipper that would be very upsetting (laughs) I don't even know how to be a leader now what am I gonna do this is not a therapy session for me (laughs) although it could be useful um what would you say to leaders that are nervous about opening themselves up? They just think, if I open up to receive feedback from the people around me, you know, the ruse is over. You know, maybe it's about imposter syndrome. Maybe it's about just self-protection. How can we help leaders to have, I guess, both the confidence and the vulnerability to be able to open themselves up in that way? Yeah, well, one of the things I, I should say really clearly is getting good at receiving feedback doesn't mean you have to take it. So the feedback could be wrong. You can always find something wrong with it, by the way. Mm. It's not always the right time to ask for it. So when people are discouraged, when you're getting up to say, hey, I know you're discouraged. I see you. I see the stress that you're under. I Mm. see the obstacles that we face. Here's what I can also see, which is where we're going and how we're going to get there. Mm. That may not be the time to open it up in the town hall to feedback, but it could be. Because if you get the sense that the people you're leading think you don't see the obstacles, Mm. then you need to let them know that you do. And saying to the town hall, what is it that you think I don't get? Because that's really important for me to understand. And being willing to listen and acknowledge what seems right about it. And then to say, okay, so here's what I, I think is right about what you're saying. Here's something I can see that maybe you can't see, which is what I think we're bringing to the table that will help us overcome or or meet those challenges. Then we're having an honest conversation because they really feel seen and heard. And you may learn something, by the way, important. But that's a particular purpose for that conversation that's really valuable. So I think that as a leader, you do need to choose your moments. And and town halls are probably the most challenging place Mm -hmm. to do that. Just going, I'm not talking about having, you know, seven hour long meetings with every person you work with. Nobody has time for that. 
it's mostly just integrating some simple practices mm-hmm. into your everyday life where you walk out of a meeting and you say to somebody, hey, what's one thing that if we changed it about the way we run that meeting would make it better? What's one thing that if I changed it would make a difference for you because I know you're under a lot of stress this month? And if there's anything I can change, I, I want to consider it, let me know. So it's very simple signals that the door is open and always looking for ways to improve and understand how it can be better. That's really helpful. We found in our organization the culture of immediate review. So literally, as you were saying, as soon as we leave a meeting, normally the three questions we're asking, you know, what went well, what was surprising, what would we change next time, actually does create that very easy, normal way of changing things without it having to build up and people get upset and because often our meetings are quite similar (laughs) so if we can change it the first time it will be better for later down the track so you're right it it, yeah it's less about having seven hour conversations and more about small changes that might be able to shift the whole culture along I think that is really helpful I think there there are also different kinds of feedback that are useful to have in our heads because the three questions you're asking are capitalizing on the first two mm-hmm. and maybe minimizing the last one which is good so the three kinds of feedback are appreciation appreciation just makes people feel seen and heard and encouraged and you know it's what keeps us going on those hard days that somebody notices or cares about how hard we're working and what we're accomplishing that's often in short supply by the way in our lives the second is coaching which is hey how could i be better how could we get there faster how could i be more efficient more knowledgeable more effective etc and when you're asking questions about what surprised us that we should pay attention to and what could we improve you're really looking to always be pursuing excellence or pursuing growth. The last kind of feedback is evaluation. That's the one that rates or ranks you. And I think that's the one that is most difficult emotionally to feel judged, but it's the one that people are fastest to give. Yeah, you're a three-star leader today. <laughs> no, you just cringed. Was that three out of three? <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. That's what we want to know right away. How did I measure What's up? Am I good enough? Am I good enough? And, you know, coming back to faith, I think that's the question, or maybe that's the answer that we're offered. Are you good enough? No, but you're accepted anyway. The Leadership Podcast is brought to you by World Vision, a global Christian humanitarian organization with over 70 years of experience, working alongside communities, churches, donors, partners, and governments to help the most vulnerable children reach their full potential by tackling the root causes of poverty and injustice. World Vision partners with churches through discipleship tools and experiences that will strengthen families, transform churches, and set your people on mission to serve the least of these in your community around the world. When Jim Collins wrote his book, Good to Great, he did a separate pull-out volume that looked at the charitable sector. I'm wondering whether you've noticed in the work that you do, whether there are different issues afoot or maybe just different trends I guess within maybe the faith sector or the charitable sector do you notice any differences that people might need to be aware of? I do notice that part of what's hard in the charitable sector and maybe in organizations of faith or mission is that honest feedback and honest conversation sometimes are even harder to come by because we don't want to hurt somebody else's feelings Mm. we don't want to disappoint anyone else we don't want want to deliver bad news, we hope and we go home and pray that it gets better on its own and I don't have to have this conversation. And so I think that actually we're more apt to avoid 
important conversations that we should be having a lot earlier. And we think to ourselves, well, I'll just have compassion and I'll forgive and I'll hope that it gets better on its own. Mm. Rather than having the compassion and the caring to say, hey, we need to talk about this because it's not working as well as I think it needs to. And I need to understand what's going on from your point of view, but I also need to share the impact that that is having. Um, And that having the courage to be kind in that way is the thing that is most needed, but we're slowest sometimes to do in those organizations. Yeah, I hear that a lot from boards relating to charities, because often board members are from the corporate world where the culture is very different. And the phrase kind of annoys me I've got a theological background you're being too Christian and I'm going well you can never be too Christian (laughs) what do you mean but what you mean by that I think is you're just being nice you're backing out the tough conversations I think the other side of it is particularly in the faith world but often in the wider charity world is that people have higher expectations of each other so because we're all in this for not necessarily personal financial benefit we're in this because we care about vulnerable children we care about poverty we care about the exploitation of women and therefore we're all going above and beyond so why isn't everybody going above and beyond and why don't you cut me some slack when I'm not performing in this area because I'm already giving in this area or within churches because of the commitment that we have to Jesus and the grace we've received from him we might expect more of each other in terms of our transformed character and likeness to Christ so how does that play into what you're seeing? Yeah I think that part of what we're struggling with is how to really practically live the message that Jesus offered which was I fully accept you just the way you are in all of your brokenness. Mm. But I also have big expectations that this is not where you're going to stay. So it's a combination of evaluation and then coaching, but also an appreciation for how far you've come or the moments of grace that you're able to achieve. And that combination of stance with each other is really hard. And, you know, one of the most interesting things for me is reading the New Testament with a lens of negotiation and conflict, because those darn disciples are in conflict with each other all the time. You'd think that they would show up with their best selves. I mean, there's Jesus right there. (laughs) I would like to think that I would behave better. But of course, they're just as human as the rest of us. Mm. And they're jockeying for status and recognition Mm. and appreciation. And they feel like, but I did this. And why isn't that noticed? And Jesus is constantly lovingly engaging with them on that, not avoiding it and saying, you know, hey, you're worried about the wrong things Mm. or, hey, this is what it's really all about. You're getting caught up in things that don't matter. And so he is accepting them, but also challenging them and coaching them and offering them a lot of appreciation. Like they feel seen in Mm. his presence, as do the you know, wretched of the earth, the tax collectors and the prostitutes and the children feel seen. And I think as human beings and as leaders, that's the role model for us. I'd love to read that book. I hope you're going to write that book, <laughs> Reading the New Testament Through the Lens of Conflict. I, I think it is a really powerful one. And you're right, the disciples are. It always struck me that Jesus, three times I think it is in Mark's gospel, predicts his death. And almost immediately there's an internal fight about who's the most powerful or you know who's going to get to inherit the kingdom or a parent gets involved and start asking her kids to be accepted to the kingdom and, and on his right or his left yes. then you read 1 Corinthians which is probably the most quoted New Testament letter at weddings because you've got this chapter about love and patience and kindness and yet that 
chapter was written in the middle of an absolute meltdown in a church over sexual immorality, people sleeping with their stepmothers and, you know, all sorts of stuff going on. And you go, wow, even if the fresh out of the box church was struggling with it then, we shouldn't be surprised that our churches today are going to have some of the similar challenges. So I kind of take that to be encouraging that it's normal, sadly normal, because we're not yet, you know, where we want to be. We're all a work in progress. God alone is going to be able to end all the conflicts when, you know, the kingdom of heaven arrives on earth. But in the meantime, the thing I hold on to is that, and I hope you find encouragement in this, that Jesus said of us, blessed are the peacemakers, for they'll be known as the children of God. And it's almost like making peace is the family business. Mm. That, that's how people will know we belong to the family, is that, yes, there's conflict, and we expect there to be conflict for, forever in one sense, but we have a role to make peace now, wherever that is, in our families, in our churches, in our communities, in our countries. And as we do that, something of the family likeness is being shown to the rest of the world. So I've found this a very personally helpful conversation. I love the work you're doing. I've been asking all my guests for book recommendations. It could be in your field, things that if people could read, it would help them in in this area of conflict and feedback. And obviously, please tell us a bit more about your books. But are there other books as well that you'd recommend to our listeners? Mm, Boy, juicy question. And by the way, you said that beautifully. And and you said something that I hadn't thought about before quite as clearly, which is some of the most powerful passages in the New Testament are born out of people being in conflict. Mm. And that we bring our human brokenness into all of our relationships with each other. But that's also, we bring the capacity to heal into those relationships with Mm. each other, and including our work relationships with each other and the way we're creating organizations that are trying to have an impact. In terms of book recommendations, gosh, there's such a long list. I have a big stack actually on my counter (laughs) that someone just sent me as a thank you. He said, rather, I was going to send you a copy of your own book because that's my favorite book, which was such a kind (laughs) thing for him to say. I'm sure not true, but sweet. But he said, instead, I thought I would send you eight books that are my favorites. So I'm all excited. Like, ask me in two months and maybe I'll have new favorites. But probably two that I find myself turning to again and again. One came out like 10 or 12 years ago now called Beyond Reason. And it's by Roger Fisher. It was his last book. um, And a guy named Dan Shapiro. But it takes a look at some of the core concerns that we have. What do we want in our relationships with each other? Autonomy, affiliation, appreciation, role and status. And when those get stepped on, that's where you get friction in relationships. So the content is something that I use all the time, both in class and with my clients. So beyond reason, I would recommend. The other one is one that's coming out from Harvard Press, Business Press, um, in March, actually, which is called What's Your Problem? <laughs> and uh, it's a guy named Thomas Vettel Vettelsborg. Wow. He's Danish. Uh, he now lives in New York. And his specialty is inviting people to bring their problems in and reframing the problems that you're solving because you're often not solving the right problem. Hmm. And in our efforts in organizations to engage problems, one problem is we're not talking about it. But then as we talk about it, are we solving the right problem here? And are there ways to reframe problems that unlock possibilities that otherwise wouldn't occur to us? So his book is super practical and engaging. He's a terrific writer, and he's got lots of great examples and practical tools for that. Oh, I look out for it. I love book recommendations. Sheila, this has been so wonderful. Thank you so much in in a 
busy time for you. I know you've got a new class of students about to arrive, so we're really grateful for you. And just to say thank you that your work is having a ripple effect at so many different levels. So I know our listeners are going to be helped and they'll follow up and read your books and follow you on YouTube and and all the work that you're doing. So thank you for spending time with us. We really appreciate it. It was such a delight. Thank you for coming to Cambridge. As I leave Harvard, there's snow on the ground, but I'm full of energy and encouragement. I'm feeling so challenged to get better at receiving feedback as a leader, learning how to be vulnerable and inclusive in my leadership. For me, the leadership that could most benefit me and maybe all of us is renegotiating how much we include the insight and help of those we seek to lead. I want to be an appreciative leader who notices what people are doing. I want to be a coaching leader that helps people pursue their own excellence and growth. I want to be an evaluative leader, but someone who can help people know that no matter how they perform, they are loved and accepted. Thank you so much for joining us on the Leadership Podcast. Please like us and share us on the platform that you use for your podcast. And join me again, Krish Kandaya, on the next edition of the Leadership Podcast. Podcast.